to our seats. I know I could leave you doing that all day. A big, a big thank you this morning to Denise and Andy who had to adjust very quickly to a new, new leader and everything. And also to Sarah who gave up her piano and her keyboard for me to play. So I just want to thank them so much for such a beautiful job. It was really wonderful. Thank you. Many of us, I imagine, enjoyed watching the Summer Olympics this year. I did. We watched a lot of it. Um, and, you know, it's fascinating to watch these athletes. They tell the stories about who they are. And you know they have been preparing and preparing and preparing and preparing for years, most of them since they were children, and have just been practicing and eating right and, and exercising and doing everything they need to do to be great at what they do. They are ready. And then they're poised and ready on the starting block. They're ready to go. And some of them win and some of them lose, but every one of them is ready and expectant. They can do it. They've made themselves ready with the training and they're expectant. They have an attitude of like, I can, I can, I could actually win this. I could do this. And uh, it was interesting about a day or two before um, Simone Biles pulled out of her um, events. I saw an interview with her uh, and someone, and at this point she was still in everything. And it was a weird interview. She seemed very negative. She was talking about like how hard gymnastics is and how, um, you know, dangerous and how people don't really understand. And even the person interviewing her, you know, kind of got a funny look on their face. And when that, when that interview was over, I thought to myself, she doesn't seem like she's in a good headspace. Like that seems like a dangerous place to be in if you're going to go ahead and do what she did. And of course, a day or two later, she did pull out. She, she was struggling. It's one thing to be realistic about what you're doing, that something's hard, that's going to have a lot of challenges, particularly if you're trying to land a vault. Those are hard things. There's risks taken. It's one thing to be realistic about that. But to go out and give it your all, you have to have a sense of expectancy of, I can do this. This is possible for me. I've trained for this. Like I, we, we believe it. And it's true whether you're landing a vault or whether you're trying to win G people to Jesus, <laughs> that we have to be expectant. There are a lot of negatives that we could focus on, right? There's a lot of things that are hard about doing ministry in 2021. It's a very secular time in our society. There's a lot of fighting and arguing going on with politics and other things. Young people are leaving the church in droves. I mean, we know all of that. In fact, there's some ministries that make a whole life out of just telling you all the negatives. I really hope you're not filling your mind with all of that. Because I've got a word for us this morning that God wants to do a new thing. God wants to work. He wants to do a new thing. And we're going to be talking about that over the next three weeks, about how to be expectant and ready. After that, we'll get into James and our life groups. It's going to be great. But this, these three weeks, we're going to be talking about how can we be expectant and ready. Now, it's possible to be expectant, but not ready. This is kind of the lazy way. This is like, yeah, I know God's going to work. You know, we got a new pastor now. We got good elders. Now. I can't wait to see what he's going to do but we don't want to do anything. I mean, don't ask me to sign up for something at the ministry fair. We want to just see it happen. We want to be on there in the, in the building when it's happening, but we don't want to put any, any gut into it, any grit into it, any work into it. That's being expected, but not ready. But you can also be ready and not expectant. I suspect there's many of you here. You're good, you're good workers. You're ready to give it your all. But you know what? It's just been a bit of a slog over the last two years, right? With COVID and everything. And so maybe our expectancy has waned a little bit. We've gotten a little discouraged, a little bit like, I don't know if God even moves anymore. <laughs> God wants us to be both expectant and ready. 
He wants to do a new thing in us. I want to read to you from Isaiah 5, 43. It says this, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen. You're chosen this morning. These are the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. That's what you're formed for, to proclaim his praise. Yet, you have not called on me, Jacob. You have not wearied yourself for me, Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. This passage is a prediction of the coming of the Messiah. God was bringing a new thing, but he was saying to them, you're resisting this. What are you doing? First of all, you're dwelling in the past, wanting me to do the same thing I did before. I'm doing a new thing. He also said, you know, you're not calling on the Lord. You're not, interesting phrase, you're not wearying yourself for me. Are we wearying ourselves for what God is doing? They'd even given up bringing offerings and sacrifices. They were neither expectant nor ready for what God was about to do, right? So how can we be expectant and ready? How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to talk about three things over the next three weeks. And it's about praying, offering, and shining. Say, pray, offer, shine. Say it. Pray, offer, shine. We're going to do all three things. The first is praying with all your might. We can do nothing on our own. Do we get that? No matter how great a new pastor you got, that's not enough. No matter how great your elders are and how beautiful this building is, no matter what, we cannot do this alone, people. We need Jesus. We need to be praying. We need to be praying. We also need to offer all of our gifts. We need to say, I am here, God, and here's what I have. Here's what I can do. Here's my my spiritual gifts. Here's my abilities. And we, we offer all of it. We spend ourselves for God. That's part of what the ministry fair is about. I hope that you don't go around to those little beautiful things that Lisa made, and I thank Lisa so much for all the hard work on that. You know, it's not, the idea is not for you to go and go, oh, I'm so glad someone's doing that. That's good. Oh, I'm so glad someone's doing that. Excellent. Oh, I'm so glad someone's doing that. Great. No, the idea is you stand there and you say, Lord Jesus, what are you calling me to do? What are my gifts? How might I serve? Lord, show me. That's, that's what that's for. And then finally, we shine with all our might, that we, for, we need to not forget that we are on mission here in the world, that we have a light to shine that's Jesus within us, and we need to be out in the world shining it wherever we go. We are on mission here. So we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But today, I want to focus on praying, on praying with all our might, trusting God to do a work here. Um, I'd like to read a description of the church in the United States. I want you to listen to this. Here's a description of the church. Denominations are losing more members than they are gaining. One pastor complained he hadn't taken in one person, young person into fellowship in 16 years. Some pastors have left the ministry for other jobs because their churches were empty. One government official said the church is too far gone to ever be redeemed. And also another one said Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years time. And a poll at Harvard showed not one believer in the whole student body and only two were discovered at Princeton. Anyone want to take a guess as to what year they were talking about? What time period? Sounds kind of like today, right? 1799. You are very close. He, he, that's not fair. You were cheated. You, you've read this before. 
1780s and 90s, right after the Revolutionary War. Weird, right? Strange. Very, very rough time in the church and in the world and in our country. And yet, we know lots of things happened after that. It changed. Why did it change? How did it change? Let me tell you. It was a call to the believers to pray. In 1794, Isaac Backus was a Baptist pastor, and he called all the churches in his area to pray, not just the Baptist churches, all the denominations, all the people, and it started spreading from him, and all of a sudden, churches were praying. They had prayer meetings that were going and going and going, and they spread and built and grew and grew until revival hit, and it hit Connecticut and Massachusetts, and then it came down to Kentucky. They had a wild revival in Kentucky, and then Tennessee, and then the the Carolinas. This was called the Second Great Awakening. And out of this awakening came thousands of people who came to know Jesus and the modern missionary movement. Almost everything that you know about missions over that next 100, 200 years came out of that period. And tons of social reform, the whole abolitionist movement, the anti-slavery movement came out of that awakening in addition to prison reform and and children's reform and, and all kinds of things. God did a major move. If you're a student of church history, you know this is not an unusual story. Almost every major move of God was preceded by passionate, persistent, believing prayer. Everyone. Don't mistake me. It's not that this man's prayers started the revival. We don't force God's hand. We don't say now, all right, well, let's just pray. God will bring us a revival. Let's do it. No. We don't force God's hand. Uh, we don't control him. He's not a vending machine that you put in the thing you want and then out, out pops, you know, what we want from him. But on the other hand, we can't ignore the fact that the Holy Spirit moves when people begin to pray. He moves. He moves in his time and in his way and for his will, but he moves when people start to pray. So church, we got to be praying. Not just a little tiny group on Sunday morning, not just a, you know, one or two people here or there. Every one of us needs to be praying for this church and for this community, for the people right around our church and for people in Greensboro and people in your neighborhood. We've got to be praying, believing prayer. We need to be ready and expectant for what God is doing. And it occurs to me that what these prayers did for the people who prayed more than forcing God to move is it actually changed the heart of the people who are praying. They became ready and expectant. Most of these prayer meetings were marked with deep repentance, sorrow for sins, crying out to the Lord. They were bringing their life into alignment with God. That's making ourselves ready. It's making ourselves ready. So this morning I'm calling us to prayer, calling us to prayer as a church. And there's a lot of things I could say about prayer. There's hundreds of books written on it. Please don't think that this morning's message is everything there is to say about prayer. (laughs) Um, I I couldn't do that if I did, you know, gave you 20 sermons on prayer. There's so much to say about it. And in fact, today I'm actually feeling led to talk about just one very specific kind of prayer, probably a kind of prayer that we don't often pray as believers. We probably, maybe we should, but I'm going to call them kingdom prayers. They're prayers for God to move in his kingdom and, and, to, bring, and to bring revival and renewal in his, in his people and in uh, surrounding them. And, you know, any prayer that we pray that's in line with Jesus and what he wants to do, it would, could be called a kingdom prayer. But I'm going to get even more specific. I want to pray about specific kind of kingdom prayer where we pray for our church, for our community, for, for our influence, for our own self, and that God would bring a revival. And I want to use 
the example of some prayers in the Bible that I think are fascinating, that I almost, I don't think I've ever heard anyone preach on, on these prayers. They're fascinating prayers. Because when you start looking for them in the Bible, kingdom prayers are all, all, all over it, all over it. Um, I read one this morning from Habakkuk. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. That's do it again, Lord. That was, that was Habakkuk. The psalmist says it in Psalm 85. Restore us again, God, our Savior. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Even the Lord's Prayer, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus himself teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. So prayers for God to restore, to renew, to bring his kingdom on this earth. And so, you know, as I looked at these prayers, people pray this kind of prayer when they're desperate. The biblical prayers I'm going to show you were, were prayers by leaders in the Bible. And if you're a leader of anything, maybe you're a leader in your workplace, maybe you have some people working for you, if you're a leader in the church, in a ministry, you know that there's a point when you're leading and everyone's looking to you and you go, shoot, who put me here? <laughs> who thought I could do this? <laughs> like, what? You know, they are all expecting all of this. And what, what can I do, Lord? How? And then we, we get desperate, right? We get on our knees. We're like, Lord, you've got to move because I can't do this on my own. This is beyond me. This is beyond me. And so we get desperate and finally cry out to God. And we need to be in that place, church. I'm, in, I'm already in that place, all right? I've <laughs> been here two months. I'm already, Lord, you've got to move. I can't make it move. Chris can't make it move. Or Lisa can't make it move. George can't make it move. Tim can't make it move. We, God's got to move. God's got to make it move. And what we face as a church and as a society in the 21st century is hard, right? It is more secular. There are people leaving the church and so on. So we, we, we need him. We're a beautiful community, a beautiful community. So much love in this place. It just overwhelms me all the time. And so we need God to move. We, need, we can't do it even by our niceness, but God has to move. We cannot do it on our own. We need his spirit to move in this place. Can we start to get a burning inside of us, church? Can you start to feel like, yes, yes, yes. We need Jesus. So I started looking at these prayers of biblical leaders. It was a number of years ago when our church was going through a difficult season and needed, it was beyond us. We needed the Lord to move. And so I started looking at the prayers of a whole bunch of biblical leaders. It's a fascinating study. Um, people like Moses and David and Solomon, Hezekiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Nehemiah, Ezra, and reading these prayers. And I started to see some patterns in their prayers. It's fascinating. I want to share with you three characteristics of these prayers at the time I have left with you. They're all kingdom prayers. Prayers of people who want to see God exalted and his people built up and thriving. Let's start with Daniel, okay? Daniel was in exile. The people of Judah had been taken over by Babylon. The Babylonians had brought some of those people back to Babylon. Daniel was one of those people. So he's in exile, and he's reading the works of Jeremiah, who was a prophet who predicted all that was happening to him and was telling him how long it was going to last. And so this is now Daniel reading. It's a very long prayer, so I've kind of taken bits and pieces of it, but if you want to read all of Daniel 9, it's great. Here's what he says. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in the, your name to our kings, our princes, 
and our ancestors and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered in shame, the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. Now, Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong, but God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. What a prayer. That's a kingdom prayer right there. A big kingdom prayer. Let me point out a few things I see in this one and in other prayers. The first thing is that the leaders start and often continue through the whole prayer with praise. They keep saying, you are mighty and all your acts are good and you are worthy. And, and while we didn't deserve it, you, you acted. You are good. You're merciful, loving, forgiving. They recount what he's done in the past. They affirm his power to do whatever he chooses. We see it in Daniel, of course. He's just, we just read it. How great, how God is great and awesome and righteous and brought the people out of Egypt. There's this prayer of Nehemiah. Also in exile, also looking back at Jerusalem and realizing that the wall was broken down and trying to figure out what to do next, here's what he prays in his beautiful prayer. He says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying, the people of Israel. He's praising before he even asks. Praising, praising. Hezekiah, a number of years earlier, received a letter from an enemy king, and he was about to attack, and this king was ridiculing the Israelites. And so Hezekiah prayed this in 2 Kings 19. Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and to hear. If we're going to pray for this church and for our ministry and our lives and our families and our communities, we need to be in awe of our mighty God. We need to believe that he is capable of doing everything that we ask, that he is mighty and lifted up. There's no one like him, that there's nothing too hard for him. All of that we've been talking about, who is God? Holy, holy, holy. He is the one who's able to do everything that we, we ask. This, this is a positive, faith-filled start, right? Yes, there's problems. Yes, there were problems then. Maybe bigger problems than we have if you've got a king about to attack. And yet, yet they start with praise. They put that aside and they praise the Lord. I thought about it this way. It's kind of like if a child comes to you and asks you as, your, as a parent to tie a shoe. Says, Dad, Dad, will you tie my shoe? And, um, you know, there's nothing in that child that thinks to themselves, I wonder if dad knows how to tie my shoe. I wonder if he's capable of tying my shoe. I mean, like, does he even want to? Like, why would he? I don't think he's going to be able to do it. Is there anything in that child? No, no. The child knows the father has everything that they need to tie the shoe, and he wants to do it, and he'll do it. This is the kind of faith we need to have when we come to God, when we come to God in prayer. We must come to God in prayer believing with such a big, trusting, childlike, awe-filled view of God that he can do anything, and he will do what we ask. These are kingdom prayers. Amen. Amen. 
Second, so we see praise first. Praise, praise all throughout. Second in these prayers, I see that the leaders identify with the people, especially in repentance. They are repenting for their sin and the people's sins. They say, we have sinned. They beg forgiveness, even acknowledging that maybe they weren't the ones that sinned. It's undeserved. They've been righteous, but they don't, it doesn't matter. They say, they say, we sinned, Lord. They don't seek their own justification. And it's interesting from Daniel 9, the passage I read before. Um, and interestingly, Daniel is one of the few characters in the Bible that actually we don't know anything negative about him. He seems to have been almost perfect. I don't, you know, I'm sure he wasn't. But what we have recorded on him is he was, the, he was one of the really good guys, even better than David. Um, but here's what he prays. And I want you to listen as I'm praying. I'm going to read some rereading a little section uh, from, from what we read before. But listen to how many times he says we. Okay? He says, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered in shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. He keeps saying we, we. I feel like we're maybe a little behind on this. Let's see. Yeah, we're on the next, the next uh, slide. I did, yes, their sin is my sin. Okay, so now I'm gonna. That, that's right where we are. So now I'm gonna talk about Nehemiah. That prayer that I started, right? Nehemiah. We started with praise. Here's how he continues it. He says, "Let your ear be attentive, speaking to the Lord, and let your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites. There's that we again." including myself and my father's family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant, Moses. Interesting, right? Jeremiah also prays this way. He says, yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Let us lie down in our shame and let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our ancestors. From our youth until this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. These men who care so much about God coming and reviving and that he moves are repenting not only of their own personal sins, but also the sins of all the people. They're standing with them. It's interesting, isn't it, that this is part of praying kingdom prayers. It almost seems off the point. I mean, what does my sin have to do with God moving in the church or in the community? What does it have to do with that? And my answer is a lot. <laughs> Almost every one of those revivals in the past that we could look at in the history of the, of the church, almost every revival is marked by that confession and repentance, by people being convicted in their souls of their sin. They stop looking at everybody else's sin. They start being convicted of their own sin, realizing how we've fallen short of God's best for us, how we haven't loved as we should love, how we've been selfish. How we've fallen in love with the things of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. How we've pursued our own comfort and happiness ahead of God. How we've made God third or fourth or fifth on our list of priorities instead of first. Lord, send revival, but let it begin with me. Let it begin with me, Lord. Draw a circle around. Maybe some of you heard this. Draw a circle around yourself. Say, Lord, would you start the revival in this circle? 
Start it right here, Lord. Before you even get to everybody else, start with me. This is part of being ready, church. Being ready for what God wants to do. We bring ourselves in alignment with him. Would you become soft to him this morning? And let him speak to you. Convict your heart and come back. Come back to him. What I think is really beautiful about these prayers also is that they, they take us away from an us versus them kind of mentality. Sometimes when people start praying for revival and renewal in their church, they pray for all those people out there who need Jesus. Those heathen out there, they need him. You don't see that in this kind of biblical prayer. It's we need you, Lord. We need you. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. We can't judge. It's kind of what I talked about last week with loving your neighbor. If you know who you are, that you are made in the image of God and, you, um, you're, and you're a sinner made uh, in need of grace, in the same way, whenever you see anyone, you're going to realize that they're made in the image of God and precious to him and they're also a sinner in need of grace. And so we just, we're, we're alike. We're alike. And so they stood with them. This is, this is how we stand in the gap. We identify and pray for those that we pray with. We don't, we don't pray for them but we pray with them. We identify with those. And it's interesting that these leaders not only repented for their own sins and then the people all around them, they also prayed for their ancestors, the people way before them. It was fascinating, right? I mean, what, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Those people are dead and gone. This is called identificational repentance. And this is actually something we're seeing actually even in the world today, right? When we see it, when organizations, governments, sometimes churches or denominations are standing up and apologizing, for example, for slavery. Now, none of those people apologizing ever had a slave. But they're saying, in our organization, we somehow supported this, we somehow condoned this, we somehow looked the other way, and we repent. This is biblical when we see that. That's biblical. It's biblical. So even though you and I may not have sinned in all the different ways that people are sinning out in the world, I ask you, what would it look like for us to pray a prayer like this? I'm going to have this prayer up here on the screen, and I want to read this. And what would it look like if we prayed this prayer? Oh, Lord, we in Greensboro and at Gate City Vineyard have sinned against you. We have made our houses and our cars, our careers and our families more important than you. We have allowed fighting inside and outside of the church, and we've even egged it on with our own words. We've ignored the poor among us, the oppressed, the children in crisis, the immigrants. We've not befriended our neighbors, but have surrounded ourselves only with people we know and like. Forgive us, Lord. Revive us. Show yourself strong. You and you alone are our salvation. Wow, that's a kingdom prayer. What could God do with a people who prayed like this? What God could do with us and in us if we started to pray like this? Amen? Amen. Finally, the last thing I see in all these prayers. So we see praise, we see repentance for themselves and for others. There's a last thing I see. And it is that the leader, as they're praying, is consumed with bringing glory to God. Glory to God is it. We sang that this morning. Let the glory of the Lord shine. That's all they care about. Over and over again, they say, for your sake, and so people will know that you are God. Over and over again. Not concerned with his own glory or his own name, but God's glory and God's name. Great story about Moses, all right? So at one point, 
Moses is leading the people in the, in the wilderness, and he sends out some spies into the promised land. All right? The spies go in, and, they, and it's, it's scary in there. There's giants and whatever. And so they come back out, and they give kind of a negative report. So all the people are, are really mad, upset and scared, and they're like, we don't want to go. They start grumbling against Moses and Aaron. God is mad. <laughs> he is mad, mad, mad. This is what God says to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I've performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. What a great offer Moses is getting. <laughs> he gets to get rid of those Israelites who have probably already a pain in his neck at this point. And he also is going to be made into a great nation. This is like best promotion, best advancement, and there's no downside for him. Be a fool not to say yes to that. What does Moses do? Listen to what he prays. And Moses says to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on earth. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. Moses is more concerned about God's reputation than his own success, power, claim. Let me say that again. Moses is more concerned with the Lord's reputation than his own, his own success, his happiness, his glory, his security. And so I asked us this morning, how important is God's reputation to you, to me? How important, how obsessed are we that God would get the glory due his name in this land, in this city, in this place? How obsessed are we with that? That God would be glorified above all else. The biblical leaders are all united on this point. That God's glory matters more than anything else. They're all united on this. Here's some more prayers, how they pray. Hezekiah, who we've been tracking with all along. This is how his prayer ends. He says, Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know you alone, Lord our God. Jeremiah Ends his prayer like this. Although our sins testify against us, do something, Lord. Why? For the sake of your name. And Daniel ends his, For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. I've been reading a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. It's a great book. But he had this one quote that just, you know, kind of stuck in my, stuck in my throat a little bit. <laughs> I heard this quote. He said, when we are wrapped up in our own kingdom, it's hard to pray for God's kingdom. <sighs> Ouch. When we're wrapped up in our own kingdom, it's so hard to pray for God's kingdom. For the glory of the Lord. For the glory of the Lord. May we do everything that we do here at Gate City Vineyard. For the glory of his name. That he would, his renown would be known. That when people would see us who bear the name of Jesus, they would say, oh, that that's what I want to be part of. That's good, because that's God. May they see Jesus in us. Not all our other stuff and all our opinions and all our, all our ways that are so human, but let, let them just see Jesus. Amen? For God's glory. Psalm 
Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Would you read that with me? Read it with me. Here we go. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Not to us, not to us. Can you see how praying this way would make us ready and expectant? Ready because we are, we are bringing our life into alignment with him. We're repenting of our sins. We're, we're, we're cl- cleansing our hearts. We're getting rid of those judgmental attitudes and just standing in the gap for people that we're checking our motives, that we would want God's glory more than anything else. And it makes us expectant because we know our God is able. He's big. He's awesome. And he's ready to move in us as we make ourselves ready for him. God is here. God is here. His spirit is here. He wants to move in this place. So would you just close your eyes for a moment? I want us to just take a moment to just allow Jesus to speak to you right now. We're going to be going into a time of communion in a few moments. So would you take a moment, just let him speak to you. Whatever has been kind of coming up in your heart, in your mind as I've been speaking. You start to bring it to God. To begin to repent of your sins. To praise Him, to trust Him. Communion is a time to recommit ourselves to Him. To remind us that. He died for us so that we could have a new life and walk with him. Be cleansed and freed and have a renewed faith so that we could be ready and expectant for what he wants to do. I think if we want to move forward here at Gate City Vineyard and at Greensboro, we need to stand together in this. We need to stand together. And believe, believe that God can, can work through you and through me, that he can shine his light through us. And so this morning, as we come forward for communion, I'm going to ask you again, like we did last time, to go ahead and take the, take the bread. We have the little cups again. Take the, the bread. We have gluten-free as well for anyone who needs it. But we, I want you to take the bread and, and take that as a symbol of your own personal walk with Christ. But I want you to hold on to the cup because we're going to take that all together. And the second thing I want to say about our time of communion is you're going to come up to receive from our communion service, but as you come up, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and stay up here. I just have this sense this morning of us standing together. Now, if you want to sit, go ahead and sit in the front rows. If you'd rather stay in your seat, that's fine. There's no pressure here. But to come and stand, that we would stand as a community and stand together saying, God, we are asking you to come. We are asking you to move in this place. We are making ourselves ready. We are expectant of you. And I just, I have this sense of us coming together. And as we do that, as we come forward, as you receive, as you take communion, I'm going to have up on the screen these prayers. If you could put them up for us, the next three kingdom prayers that we've just been talking about. Praise him, lift up his name. He is holy and great and able to do everything. Repent of your sins. Ask for forgiveness for us as a church, for yourself, for us as a church, for the people of Greensboro, for our world. Stand in the gap. Use this time while you're waiting, while you're in his presence to start praying. And then beg God to be glorified in this place. You start to pray those prayers. As we're gathered here together, we're going we're to take communion. And we're going to sing a song.
but let us, let us do that. I'm going to invite the communion service to come forward.